Hi, my name's Kath Mercer and welcome to the STI podcast. Today I'm interviewing Lisa Langhow about her paper, How You Ask Really Matters, Randomised Comparison of Four Sexual Behaviour Questionnaire Delivery Modes in Zimbabwean Youth. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you, Catherine? I'm fine, thanks. Um, I guess we should start at the beginning, really. I just wonder why it's important to look at how questions about sexual behaviour are asked, and why did you decide to write this paper? Well, thanks very much for asking. I think it is a very good question. Um, As you know, globally, sexual behaviours are considered to be very, very private and often socially censured, and this is particularly true among young people. And in the work that we do in sub-Saharan Africa, HIV is predominantly driven by sexual behaviours. So if we're going to better understand these behaviours so as to develop appropriate interventions and to subsequently measure their effectiveness, we need to be really confident about the validity of the questions that we ask. So for many years, much attention has been placed on getting the questionnaire wording right. Mm -hmm. However, currently, there's more attention that's beginning to be focused on the questionnaire method itself that's used. So this is particularly important to where I work in sub-Saharan Africa, where the burden of the disease is greatest, but also as a result of poor literacy and predominantly poor rural settings, interviewer-administered questionnaires have been the mode of choice. So we decided to explore this issue in a bit more detail because we wanted to see if there were other options out there. And this question hasn't been asked before? Um, Yeah, it has been asked um, in in other situations. The comparison um, discussion has taken place mostly in developed countries, although, as I said recently, there's been more work being done in comparative methodology in developing country settings. And, in fact, I did a systematic review of that um, as part of the work that we did for this work. Okay. And I guess you didn't find much work in resource-poor settings then on this question? Uh, No, there were 26 studies at the time. Gosh, right. (laughs) So it was smaller. (laughs) So what did your research actually involve to answer this question? Yeah, so we we conducted a randomized control trial that actually compared four questionnaire delivery methods, and it was within a population of secondary school students who had participated in a baseline survey of a larger trial called the Regad Divishiri trial, which was looking at the effectiveness of an HIV prevention work in young people. Um, The research that we did was conducted in 12 rural communities in three of the 11 provinces that are located in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. And the four methods that we used, the first one was a self-administered questionnaire where the respondent did what we traditionally think of as um, self-administered questionnaires where they answered questions in a booklet using a pen. And then we had a second method which we called audio SAQ, which was basically a derivative of the self-administered questionnaire. And it included an audio component where the respondent got to hear the questions and the instructions and responses over an MP3 player. These were both self-completed, were they? Those are both self-completed, and we, had, we basically had three self-completed methods and one interviewer-administered right. method. So the third method was one that's called a CASI, which stands for Audio Computer Assisted Survey Instrument. And the computer can actually be any type of computer. It can be a desktop or a laptop. It actually can even be referred to as a PDA. But in this case, we used laptops, and the respondent, again, had this chance to listen to the questions and instructions and responses over a, a set of headphones. Okay. And then the fourth method was one that was an interviewer-administered uh, method, but it was a variation that was developed by Simon Gregson, who's done a lot of work in this field, where the respondent was able to answer the sensitive questions on a sheet of paper that was put into a ballot box. So the rest of the interview was done in an interviewer-administered setting, but the, the, the set of questions that were sensitive, we had the interviewer do self-administered. Okay. The respondents were randomly allocated to the different methods, uh-huh. and... Um, 
There were some of them that came back and took a shortened version a week later so that we could look at con- the controlling for the same respondent but looking at reliability and validity between oh, two modes. Oh, that's a good idea, yeah. And we, and we finally took um, dried blood samples for, um, which were tested for HIV and HSV2, and young women were asked to give us a urine sample that was tested for pregnancies. I just wanted to ask you about the use of CASI in that setting. Um, I, I, I read your paper and I noticed that um, uh, you'd, you'd explained how, because there, were no ele- there was no electricity, laptops had to be recharged using a, tra- a truck battery. Um, so it just made me wonder that this, the, how suitable it was to use uh, computer-assisted self-interviewing in such a resource-poor setting. That's an excellent question, and it's something that I um, I think is a really important question to ask, um, because I think that's often the issue and the reason that people have hesitated for so long in terms of looking at the use of what we call sort of high-tech um, mechanisms in resource-poor settings. Was it a challenge? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we didn't know. We, we were learning as we went along, and we started by using truck batteries powered by solar panels, but they, but it worked fine, and it was definitely feasible to do that. A year later, in our final survey, we used generators, and then uh, this last year, we've used PDAs in research, so uh, which have, have a much longer charging power. So I think as you learn and you go out into the field, you get a better sense of what's feasible and doable. Um, for me, the key issue is that it, it was you were able to do it. I mean, we never had a laptop um, that died and wasn't you know where somebody wasn't able to complete their survey or or mm-hmm. something like that. But what about computer literacy as well in that setting, aside from the technical? Well, aspect? that's a really interesting question, and it's some um, yeah, it's something I was going to talk about later, but I'll be happy to talk about it now. I think that that's the biggest issue is that computer literacy is something that people think is is a is a barrier to using a CASI, but actually. Um, it's kind of like driving a car. I do that all the time, but I don't know the internal mechanisms of, of driving a car, and the same is true for computers. If you, the way that the, the computer mechanism is, works for, the, for administering a questionnaire on a laptop requires the person to know very, very little. Um, they basically have to press, uh, use a mouse to click on the buttons, um, and, and, they, and, and the, everything else is done for them. So you don't have to be what we would consider to be computer literate um, in order to do that. Okay. Um, now we'll come on to the findings of your um, RCT in a moment, but I noticed in your paper you describe a qualitative uh, element as well, and I just wonder why you decided to supplement the quantitative data with, with uh, qualitative data. That's a really good question. Um, for us, an important part of this research was not only to, to have the quantitative data in terms of the comparison, but was to mm-hmm. also understand how the respondents themselves perceived each of these different methods. So if a particular method seemed to produce more honest answers, we really wanted to know why that was from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I think we were interested in understanding more about how young people with little to no experience with computers had found using laptops. And the second issue was that because in three of our methods we had an audio component, we really wanted to understand more from young people about their impressions of this and and whether they thought there was a difference between an interviewer versus an anonymously recorded voice. Mm -hmm. So for us, focus group discussions and interviews with young people was really the best way to get at this understanding. I see. So maybe you could tell us a bit about what you learned from your research, both the quant and the quali. Um, so firstly, we learned that the modes that included uh, recorded audio components, so the ones that were a CASI and audio SAQ, both produced higher reports of uh, socially censored behaviors. Mm-hmm. In fact, after adjusting for the covariates, the odds of reporting sexual activity among audio SAQ and a CASI users was twice as high as the odds for SAQ users. 
and there was no difference between reporting with those that were interviewed and the SAQ users. ACASA users reported a lower age at first sex and were more likely to report a greater number of partners. Now, in the world of sexual behavior reporting, when you find increased reporting of a, central, a socially centered behavior, um, that's an indication for us that, that you've gotten a chance at sort of getting closer to honesty or accuracy. Right. Um, so for us, that was, that was a key issue. From the qualitative perspective, um, we really found that young people really appreciated having the voice, that it really helped them follow along. And I think this is particularly an important issue for um, sexual behavior questionnaires where in, in the, the work that I do in, in, in rural Zimbabwe, there's, no, um, there's not a lot of experience of seeing the sexual words printed. Um, in, you, there's no Danielle Steele right. <laughs> translated in Shona. Um, so you, young people just don't see the word in print. They might hear it, but they don't see it. So for them, it's really important to be able to sort of match listening to something to, to, hearing, to seeing it in print. What kind of terminology did you use then? So in terms of wording sexual behaviors, um, did you use, I guess there was no slang then, or was there slang? Or That's a very good question. And it, it, because, um, because it's nuanced, we, we spent quite a lot of time um, doing some additional research on, on what, the question, what the questionnaire wording should be mm-hmm. and have published uh, data on that and how important it is to do sort of cognitive interviewing when you I mean, questionnaire import wording is still very, very important, having said that at the beginning that most of the focus was on that. It's still key yeah. <laughs> and yeah. essential in, in designing sexual behavior questionnaires. What we, dis- what we ended up using was um, a, a slang was, was something that was not considered appropriate for the young people, even though slang existed. Uh-huh. Instead, we used a word that's called, um, that tr- translates as sleeping on the mat, kusangana pabonde or kurara mese. And it, it, but we then put an expletive, uh, a much more uh, definition in it afterward, where we said specifically what we meant by sexual intercourse. And that was available both from uh, through reading that mat as well as hearing it, depending on the method um, that the survey was being administered. Yeah. So if and except for the um, self-administered questionnaire, which was just the booklet, and they only right. got to read it, everything that was. Um, but the questionnaires were all exactly identical. So the questions that were being seen by a, a respondent taking SAQ was exactly the same as the question that was being read by the interviewer or being seen by the seen and heard by the person taking ACASI. Right, right. And what they heard being said read to them was the same as what they saw on the screen. Right, right, yeah. So thinking about your findings, were you surprised by any of them? You know, that's an interesting question. I think if you ask the research team, they would tell you that one of the things that I kept emphasizing was the importance of having this voice to help the respondent along. And, and we, I know that we spent a lot of time focused on getting the quality of those voices right. So we spent time you know, matching the gender to the questionnaire and ensuring that the tone was empathetic and non-judgmental. I sat in on all the readings to make sure that the phrasing was, was done well. But even with my prior gut feeling and the effort that we put into it, I was still surprised by how often it was mentioned in the qualitative data. Right. So I think that in, in, in countries where, where literacy is less and where, where the discussion just isn't, the, the words just aren't in print, I think that's the issue for me that, that needs to be emphasized, that people mm-hmm. need that audio-visual connection for them. Um, and that's probably where, where interviewer-administered questionnaires have been helpful because people have been able to hear it. Yes. But there's the embarrassment factor. Sure, sure, sure. So the audio Cassie seems like a good compromise between hearing but not having someone actually asking the questions. 
Yeah, so either the audio SAQ or the ACASI were both both found to be favorable. I mean, in the qualitative data, young people didn't – I think there was – they preferred ACASI because of the novelty of it. But, I mean, there was certainly still in terms of ability to understand and the acceptability of the methods, there was, there was no difference. And, in fact, in our final survey, we used a combination of both. Right, right. I mean, thinking about the implications for other studies um, that are planning to collect sexual behavior data, what do, what do you think they are? I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm immediately thinking, gosh, there are, there are cost implications of, of administering an audio CASI, surely, and maybe that's just not appropriate for, for some studies, especially studies perhaps um, needing a large sample. What would you say to that? that, that you know, that's a very good question. I, I think... Um I think a couple of things have happened in the last couple of years. I mean, certainly cost was an issue for us um, when we thought about our final survey. I mean, one of the reasons that we used two different methods, um, the audio SAQ and the ACASI in the final survey, was because of cost. We didn't have the funding in our, in our current budget to buy a laptop for all the different people that needed it. So we used predominantly audio SAQ for the non-skip patterns. Mm-hmm. But then when it came to the sexual behavior questions, we, we used ACASI, and that allowed us to have less laptops over a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that was 2007 and we're entering 2011 now, and even in that short period of time, things have drastically changed in terms of the price of, of, of material. Um, and I think in particular what's happened is that things have things started with a Cassie on desktop, they then mm-hmm. shifted to laptops, and now they're moving more and more in the direction of PDAs. Yeah. And, um, and that is really a cost-effective mechanism of doing stuff. We ran a survey just recently um, with another group of young people in Zimbabwe and used PDAs for that, and it was it was fine. I mean, it was just as good as the, uh, the, um, the ACASI version. We weren't able to get audio on the responses, but we were able to get it on the questions and instructions. And, um, you know, cost was not an issue in the same way anymore. And I guess as well, whether you're using audio CASI or CASI, you've got the added uh, advantage that you don't have to worry about data entry. So there's Exactly. Yeah. So if you yeah. were going to ask me about the, the three kind of key issues in terms of implications for sexual behavior data, mm-hmm. for me, firstly, there's um, the higher rate of reporting sensitive behaviors, which we've talked about. But secondly, we limit our data entry error because it's entered automatically. And thirdly, we, we found a very low non-response rate, um, which is, I think, a key frustration when, when, for those of us in this field trying to collect sexual behavior data. People Absolutely. just don't answer when they don't want to. Yeah. Um, so finding it, we, we found that a CASI, I don't know that it forced people, it just sort of made them feel able to answer the questions as it went along. I think it reduced their level of sensitivity. They felt more that everything was more private in this, that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think having earphones really helps as well. You know, that just puts you in your own personal world with you and the voice, and so you're not as keyed into all the other issues that are happening around there. And then finally, I think we, we need to place an importance on the possibility. Cassie really has the advantage of offering the skip pattern, which is so mm-hmm. important to us when we look at partner matrices. So audio SAQ, as I said before, was fine in our final survey. You know, we didn't have any trouble with it in terms of, but when we wanted to ask skip questions, having, having a, a computer to be able to help you automate that really, really is kind of critical. Yeah, and very yeah. very helpful. You just can't do but, that as a pen and paper administered questionnaire, can you? It's much more difficult. I mean, you certainly can do it in all those methods. I mean, SAQ you can do it. You can do it with the audio SAQ. But we just found that there were more data entry errors around mm. skip patterns when it wasn't automated. Even with an interviewer, the chances of getting an error are, are there. Sure, sure. I think just secondly for me, the the other key message um, 
is really about not feeling that we have limited options in working in resource-poor settings. I mean, I can certainly confess to being guilty of that. I've been conducting research in Zimbabwe for more than 10 years, and I know it's really easy to think, oh, yeah, well, that's a nice idea, but it can't be done in my setting. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just important for us to to think about outside the box and sort of try something new. Um, Certainly when we were studying this and starting to think about this research, there was, it was really new, and it, the, the research that was happening was really scattered, and it was hard to know what other people were doing, so there was a lot of skepticism. But, you know, we tried it, and now there's been a lot of other data that's come out, and it's showing that it's working, and, you know, I think it's a good, it's a good step forward. Fantastic. I think it's, that's definitely a challenge for us all to, uh, to think about the role of uh, Cassie, or specifically audio Cassie, um, regardless of the setting. Well, I've very much enjoyed hearing about it and talking to you today, Lisa. So thank you very much. You've been listening to an STI podcast with me, Catherine Mercer, uh, interviewing Lisa Langhow uh, about her paper, How to Ask Really Matters. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.